Well, you have your Bibles, I'll keep them open to John chapter 1. We are going to be spending most of the Advent season uh, walking through the Incarnation, that is Christ coming to earth, uh, in the Gospel of John. And we're going to do that by looking at the implications of the Incarnation as they are given to us within the text. And as we celebrate Christmas, we often hear that this is the most wonderful time of the year. It's one of our favorite times of the year for many of us, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who would say it's not the weather that makes this the most wonderful time of year. I live in the wrong state for that. It's certainly not the busyness that makes this the most wonderful time of the year, but there's reasons behind why we call it that. And today we're going to talk about one of those reasons within the incarnation and the coming of Christ, and that is this idea of that Jesus is the truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word uh, creates all things, and the Word takes upon Himself flesh, and we read there that grace and truth come through the Word. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who would come to me will have eternal life. And as we talk about this idea of truth this morning, we have to realize that to a large extent, our society denies its existence. We talk about truth, or truths is more accurate. Everyone has their own, or each culture has its own truth that it can arrange its life around. Basically, the whole premise boils down to this. If God exists, then so does truth. If God does not exist, then truth is merely relative to the individual or the society. It is subjective or self-determined. And if we live in a world with no truth, then as many have recognized, all that is left is power. Is the quest for power. That is modern leftism in a nutshell. If there is no truth, then it's the people who have power who get to determine what is actually true. And what this shows us is our need today for the Christmas story. Right, the true Christmas story, not the cheesy hallmarky kind of stuff. Not the romance around Christmas that's on the Hallmark Channel. Right? Why do we need to be joyful this season? Why is this the most wonderful time of year? You may just reply to me, Levi, don't be such a Scrooge, just be happy. Well, that's not really good enough for me, sorry. What does Christ's coming have to do with the idea of truth? All right, Christians often will feel that you're outmatched. Right, that you're outmatched when you get into a discussion with someone who does not uh, believe in Christ. Why do we, what do we do in a society that is quite literally falling apart at the seams? We don't believe in truth, and yet if someone disagrees with your truth, it seems like you really do uh, believe that something is true. How do we respond? The Scripture does commands us to give the reasons for our hope. And so today, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, examining the chief rival belief system to Christianity. And that will be naturalistic Darwinism. What is naturalistic Darwinism? It's the belief that everything can be subjective or reduced to that which is natural. And all of life and all of the order and everything that you can find in the world today is the byproduct of time and chance and natural processes that have brought us life through evolution. And every false belief today, even those that will believe somewhat contrary to what we talk about today, 
are built upon these assumptions. And I want you to note that naturalistic Darwinism is not, I cannot say this strong enough, it is not a purely scientific belief system. It's a faith. It's a faith. And I hope you will, you will come to see that as we talk about it today. And it's a faith that if we are honest, and if we are keeping our eyes in the study books and seeing what they're saying, it's a faith that is really starting to cannibalize itself. It's falling apart. They won't admit that when they're talking to Christians, but they admit it when they talk among themselves. It doesn't really make much sense anymore. I mean, science, just like everything else, is just an exercise of white supremacy or power or whatever. And so this is going to be my premise for this first half. If your belief system, if your worldview can't explain the world and basic human experience, then you should reject it. And I include Christianity in that. If Christianity can't explain the world as we see it and basic human experience, then you should reject it. But the same is true of Darwinism. And as I say that, I want to, uh, you should know if you've been here for any amount of time, I don't believe that that's true of Christianity at all. I believe Christianity is the only belief system that can provide the answers that we, we, we seek. And so Christianity is not, in any sense of the word, anti-science. We, are, we do not stand opposed to science. There are certain scientific theories that we are diametrically opposed to. There are certain scientists that we are very much opposed to, but we are not opposed to science in general. In fact, if you study the history of science at all, the modern scientific revolution began precisely because of the Christian belief system that surrounded it. It provided the necessary beliefs for science to flourish in a way it had never flourished in any society before the West and Christianity took hold. And these beliefs that laid the foundation was that the world was created by a rational and personal God, and he therefore created the world in an ordered and knowable way. He declared and made that world good, and he made man in his own image so that man could rightly know things. The paganism that dominated the world, whether it be in the West or elsewhere, did not have those beliefs. And so science, though it reached certain levels in every ancient civilization, always hit a ceiling. It always hit a ceiling because of the beliefs that surrounded that society. So, if a man, if man though is not personal, if man is not rational, then you and I, we can't really know anything. If the universe is not ordered, if it is not predictable, if it is chaotic, then the scientific method cannot function. You cannot expect repeated results if the world is indeed chaotic. Modern science still to this day assumes Christian beliefs. Even those who are most adamantly anti-Christian as scientists assume Christianity to become anti-Christian. So I want to give you a glimpse of what, what these people are saying, these secular scientists are saying about naturalism and Darwinism. And then we're going to tie this into John 1. And I want to note that I'm, I'm relying heavily here on two works by Nancy Piercy of her book, Finding Truth, which I would recommend to all of you, kind of lays this all out in her other book, um, The Soul of Science, which traces the history of science and how Christianity, in not, not just Christians, uh, historians who admit this, Christianity was indispensable to science becoming what it is today. 
So again, my premise, if your beliefs can't account for the world as it is and basic human experience, then it is wrong. So here are some things that naturalism and Darwinism today are having problems with or are denying. And the first is this. Naturalistic Darwinism denies there is such a thing as human freedom or human free will. Right? Immaterial things do not exist or can't exist. So this means that you... All of you sitting here do not have a mind. You have a brain, yes, but you do not have a mind. Your brain is merely a biochemical machine that gives the illusion of freedom and a will. John Horgan of the New York Times reports on this, and he says that most neuroscientists reject the idea of free will in humans. So most neuroscientists today, people who study the brain, will tell you that you don't have a free will. Why do they tell you that? Well, John Searle, he, he echoes this as well. He says, we can say that I believe in determinism, that is biological determinism, that you are strictly determined by the genes and the DNA that you have inherited. You are nothing more than a machine. Cambridge psychologist Nicholas Humphrey explains this more. He says, our starting assumption as scientists ought to be that on some level, consciousness has to be an illusion. That is, you are not really conscious. You are, that's just your brain tricking you. He says the reason is obvious. Why is the reason obvious? Why is this impossible? He says, if nothing in the physical world, or sorry, nothing in the physical world can have the features that consciousness has, then consciousness cannot exist. Right, track his reasoning here. Right? If nothing in the physical world the material world, has consciousness besides humans, then consciousness can't exist because where did it come from? It can't come from the natural processes. There's nothing supernatural. There are no non-physical things that exist. But Christianity comes in and says, but if there is a conscious personal God who created everything, then that thing can exist. If you're following their reasoning, this means things like love don't really exist. The Wall Street Journal puts it this way. It says that you should, instead of saying, I love you, the knowledgeable lover should say, darling, dopamine floods my caudate nucleus every time I look at you. <laughs> love is literally just a chemical in your head. You don't really love your spouse. You don't really love your kids in any meaningful way, or your grandkids. It's just an evolved chemical reaction in your brain to help the species survive and adapt and reproduce. If you think these conclusions are absurd, well, you're not alone. These people think they're absurd too. Back to John Searle. We can't, though, give up our convictions of our own freedom, even though there's no ground for it. We couldn't live with that. So as he goes on, John Searle just admits that, well, I have to pretend that freedom exists because I can't live that way. Even though I know better, I can't really live like that. And then Horgan again chimes in, no matter what my intellect decides, I'm compelled to believe in free will. They can't live with it. They have to abandon their beliefs to actually live in this world. Or as Romans 1 puts it, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The truth is plain to them but they can't reckon with the fact that they need God for any of this to make sense. So again, my humble suggestion is this. If your belief system, your worldview can't make sense of human experience, 
then not only is it wrong, you should leave it behind and find something better to live according to. The second thing Darwinism is denying is tied very closely to this, is the idea of a personal self. If there is no free will, you're not really making decisions, you don't really love anything, it is because there is no actual individual you. There is no individual person. Francis Crick was one of the scientists who discovered DNA. He says this. He says, You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of identity and free will, are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You are nothing but a pack of neurons. Merry Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of year. Edward Slingerhand puts it this way. We are robots, and here's the catch, designed not to believe that we are robots. One might ask him who did this designing and why were they so tricky uh, about everything. Darwin says everything in this world says otherwise, but you should ignore it because we know better. How did they arrive at such a conclusion? Because if the universe is just the random result of an impersonal explosion billions of years ago, and through time and chance and blind processes, which we don't know where they came from either, you sit here, then there is no real you. You're just a different collection of atoms that will one day be rearranged in a different way when you are dead. Without the infinite and personal creator God, this is where we inevitably end up. This is what Darwinism and naturalism have wrought. We have been programmed or deceived to believe one way, but we know better because we're scientists. So you should listen to the scientists. Don't attack science, guys. Third, Darwinism is leading to the denial of reality itself. Right? So if you, if you don't believe in a free will, if you don't believe in a personal self, how can science even really function? And the new scientist Donald Hoffman talks about a study which demonstrates that if evolution is true, then our senses can't really be trusted. To quote him, he said it leads, or sorry, it, there, the argument is that your senses will only tell you what you need to survive, not what is actually really there. That's how Darwinism functions, or evolution functions. It, it leads to, quote, a crazy-sounding conclusion that we may all be gripped by a collective delusion about the nature of the world. So good luck arguing with these people. You're just deluded. It's a collective or mass illusion. We're all just stuck in the matrix. You don't know any better, so just enjoy it while you can. But the ironic thing is, the results of the study undermine the methods of the study. Modern science is built upon the idea that empirical evidence exists and can be trusted. That is, empirical evidence are things you use with your senses to see and measure. The findings of these studies say you can't trust your senses and the measurements they're taking. Well, then how can you conduct the study if you can't trust your senses? It's a self-defeating kind of worldview. And the consequences are clear if you live these things out. We can't live like this, so we're going to pretend that this isn't true because no one wants to live this way. Some people, though, are brave enough to be honest. The world-famous atheist Richard Dawkins, in his book, uh, I believe it's in his book, The God Delusion, says this. He says, there is at bottom 
No design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but pitiless indifference. You and I just live in a cold, meaningless universe. Get used to it. That's your chief rival. That's your chief rival. And we sometimes feel intimidated by them. Their worldview is objectively wretched, horrible, ugly, and not appealing. Nobody wants to live that way. You don't really exist. You don't really know reality. None of this actually matters. You don't actually love anyone. And again, Merry Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of year, but I don't really know what that means. If you wonder why our society is so confused, you need to look no further than the foundations it's been building upon the last decades. And for this reason, and many more, is growing mounting scientific evidence um, that is leading many scientists to leave naturalism behind and Darwinism behind. I can't go into all of that today, but there are many years who are, and then the, those who aren't leaving it behind will say, well, yeah, there's all these problems with it, but we don't have a better option besides God, and we're not going there. Thomas Nagel's book on the mind and the universe has this subtitle. He says this, Why the materialist, neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. Thomas Nagel is not a Christian. Why is it false? Because it leads to things that we know are just not true. So why do we spend time on this? Because I want you to see the goodness of the story of Christmas in comparison to that. Your unbelieving friends, family, neighbors talk about this being the most wonderful time of year, often with no idea why it is. It should be different for us. We know why this is the most wonderful time of year. There's been, I fear the internet isn't just exposing our stupidity, it's just it's amplifying our stupidity. There's been an argument raging, and I don't know where it began in Christian circles over the last several months, that Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it was pagan in its origin. Let me just give a, a brief moment uh, to that. The idea that Christians took the uh, winter solstice or whatever holiday of Rome and converted it into the birth of Christ is historically questionable at best and just downright not true. Right. Oh, they celebrated uh, uh, holidays around the same time. Well, you know what? Native Americans and other pagans all around the world celebrated solstice holidays too. That doesn't mean they were connected. The early church was very anti-pagan. And the early church fathers chose December 25th because they believed Christ was conceived nine months earlier during the Passover. That's how we got December 25th. That's why we celebrate it. Did we take on some pagan traditions later on, like bringing in pine trees into your house and decorating them to celebrate Christmas? Yes, we did. And no, it's not wrong for you to have a Christmas tree. Okay? But as we celebrate Christmas, we should see that the Christmas story shatters these lies and gives you a real foundation for truth in this world and therefore for joy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in the beginning He was with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this opening chapter of the Gospel of John, we find hope, meaning, joy, truth, and the reason why we celebrate Christmas. I want to give you five essential truths revealed to us by the story of Christmas. First, we see the truth of who God is. 
John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word Himself was God. And in this first chapter of the Gospel of John, you are introduced to two persons in God. There was the Word, He was there, He was with God. There's a relationship going on between Him and the Father, and He also was God. So you have two persons here in this God. Later on in the Gospels, you're introduced to the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. But we have here at the beginning a a God who is perfect in holiness, purity, love, power, unity, and even community. And then we read that everything that exists was made by and through that second person of the Trinity, the Word, God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the missing center and foundation of science. This personal God who made everything. This God who tells us the universe is not a random accident. It is not cold, indifferent, and an impersonal place. But it was created by a good and loving and personal God. Why are we personal people? Why do we crave community? Why do we relate? Why do we communicate? Because we are made in the image of God and God is three in one and within Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit communicate and love one another. The triune God created and ordered everything. None of this is random chance. None of this is chaos. All of it is rational and ordered, reflecting the glory of God of God from the tallest mountains to the tiniest cells into the galaxies still being formed we see the glory of God what christmas reveals to us is God himself and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth and so God the son became flesh so that you might see the glory of God the Father. That you might see grace and truth. Verse 18 continues, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, who has made Him known. Jesus will say later on, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Christmas is about God revealing Himself to His creation. Man has tried and failed again and again. To find truth and to make sense of this world apart from God. And they keep failing. Why? Because if you want to make sense of God's world, God must reveal himself to us. He must reach down. We cannot reach up high enough. So God reveals himself through a new act of creation as God the Son adds a human nature to himself. Second, the story of Christmas reveals to us who we are. Who man is. There are two sides to the Christian doctrine of man, and we dare not neglect either one or de-emphasize either one. The first is this, that man is made in God's image and he is therefore good and valuable and worthwhile. He reflects his creator. And even after the fall, there is still a value to you because you reflect the image of God. You are far more valuable than a rock. You are far more valuable than a monkey. You are more than the atoms that are currently arranged into your form. Because you reflect the image of the infinitely good God. Second though, man though valuable, is fallen and sinful. Stained and enslaved to sin. 
Again, John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Why did his own people not receive him? Because they are full of sin. They prefer the darkness over the light. The Christian view of man is that man is both good and a sinner. Creation is good, but stained. And what this means for us is that we imperfectly reflect our Creator. We are rational like He is. We are personal like He he is. We can know things like He does. We love like He does. But we do all of these things in a limited and tainted way because of our sin. We can never get too high on humanity, and we can never get too low. Man is both sinner and made in the image of God. Third, the Christmas story reveals to us what this world is. And by world, I mean creation. Everything was made by and through the Son. This world exists for Him. Like humanity, this universe is a place of tremendous good and terrible evil. We see the beauty of mountains and sunsets, and we see the ugliness of snow-covered streets. This world is both a place of life, and yet entropy and death reign. Our bodies break down and die, and all creation groans under sin. But this remains God's world, and God refuses to lose his world. And that is what Christmas is about. Christmas is a divine rescue mission. It is where God puts boots on the ground by coming to the earth himself. And this is the beginning of the end of the reign of Satan. Because God made this world, it is good, and he will not lose it to his rival. Contrary to what Dawkins says, this universe is not a meaningless, unhappy, and cold place. It is a wonderful place that reflects the glory of God and it is being redeemed by the blood of the Son. Christ is God declaring this creation is valuable. It is His so much so that He will join His creation and die for it. That leads us to our fourth point. Truth exists and truth is therefore knowable. All the universe is held together by its Creator. Jesus is the center and the foundational truth of all truth. All knowledge is stored up in him, we read in Colossians 2. Jesus claims to be that capital T truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1.18, Christ comes and we see grace and truth in him. Jesus is God's perfect revelation of himself to man. And so Jesus is the center of all knowledge of God himself. This is what Christmas shows us, that truth exists and it is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the truth. So all truth is tied into who this Jesus is. He's the personal embodiment of what it means to be true. Fifth and finally, this So the final truth revealed to us by Christmas is that you and I need a Savior. We must be saved. The incarnation of God the Son points us directly to the cross. All this other stuff is important. 
But the main reason Christ came was to save. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christ came to save. Christ came for you. He came with a fixed mission of going to the cross. For the wages of sin is death. And that penalty had to be paid. And here's the catch. God can't die. One of the reasons why this, the gospel message was such a stumbling block to the Jews is that God can't die. And they're right. He can't. Unless he adds a human nature to himself that can die. The incarnation was absolutely necessary for Christ to go to the cross. The divine nature is eternal. It cannot suffer. It cannot die. But the eternal Son did just that. Through coming as a little baby born of the Virgin Mary. This is the heart of Christmas. God's love displayed through coming to save his fallen creation. And this means that you and I have a chance to become the children of God, not by our decisions, not by the will of man, but of God. You should let that sit on you for a second. You becoming a child of God is done by the power of God. That means it is secured by God. He saves. So what do we take take from all of this? We started talking about crazy scientists. We ended up in John 1. One reason for Christmas. One reason you you should celebrate. And celebrate joyfully. Even loudly. Is that Christmas points us to truth. It gives you the foundation for why you can believe in anything at all. As Christians, you and I have no reason to fear any question or any belief system. They've all been measured. They've all been tried. They all fall short. The reason why society is shifting right now and the ground feels like it's going out beneath your feet is because we've been trying since the Enlightenment, we've been trying to do all of this without God and we're finally coming to the absurdities of that way of thinking. We don't know if boys are boys. We don't know if girls are girls. We don't know if this. We don't know that. Well, that's because you've kicked out the foundation. When you look out and you see the absurdity of that world, you should see the absurdity of the rival belief systems. There's no reason to be intimidated by them. They're not that smart. You can't out-reason God. Second, you should know this Jesus. When we think about Christmas, we should be thinking about the glory of Christ. You want to know the Jesus who upholds everything. The one who was with God and who is God. The one who humbled himself to become a man. The one who came to die. Commit your life to knowing this God. This Jesus. And if you do not know this Jesus today, I give you full, well, permission is the wrong word. I give you full encouragement. Look into these claims. Read these books. Read what these scientists say among themselves. Again, Finding Truth by Nancy Piercy. Wonderful Wonderful resource. Very accessible. Look into these questions. The Bible's got the answers that everybody is looking for. Christianity is not without 
good reason. It is not blind faith. Uh, the former uh, atheist, world-famous atheist, Anthony Flew, he was a debater who spent his life, I think, believe he's now passed away, he spent his life uh, debating Christians, his whole life trying to prove that they were wrong. And one of the last things he wrote before he died was this book. There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And in that book, he doesn't say he's a Christian, but he does say Christianity is the one belief system, the one religion that can answer all the questions the best with the most consistency. Spent his whole life arguing against it, and he realized, ah, well, you know what, they've actually got better answers than I have. I challenge you, if you don't know this Jesus, try to make sense of love, to mean anything beyond chemical. Make sense of knowledge in reality in life without Jesus. Because the best minds in Western society for the last several centuries have tried to do so and we've amounted to this point where we don't know if a boy is a boy. They've tried and they've failed. Christians, on the other hand, still have the same beliefs. You can still make sense of the, word, of the world. And so as we move towards Christmas, I want to encourage you, celebrate and worship this Jesus. There is good reason for Merry Christmas. There is a good reason why this is the most wonderful time of year. Because Christ is our Lord and Christ is our Savior. He is our example. He is our sacrifice. He is our teacher. He holds all things together and He is coming back. In Him, we find the meaning, the purpose, and the truth of all things. Therefore, brothers and sisters, celebrate Christ more this Christmas. Put up your Christmas tree. Sing these great Christmas hymns. Sing them with your kids. Sing them with your grandkids. Go around with a smile on your face because you know Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ is coming back. And this is the most wonderful time of year despite the snow. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word and that in Your Word we find the truth of who Christ is. We praise You this Christmas season that You sent Him as a little child to be born in the middle of nowhere to a poor family, to be raised in the teaching of Your Word and Your Scripture, and to go and to be anointed and to perform miracles. But all of that was nothing compared to what He did upon that cross. Lord, we thank You that Christmas points us to Easter. And that Easter points us to the second advent of Christ. Lord, we ask that He would come and that He would come quickly. But until then, You might find us rejoicing in the news of His first coming. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.